Brock Lesnar could be coming back to WWE and Triple H is teasing some big plans for after WrestleMania. Find out more by searching Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. everyone, it's Jack from Cultaholic Wrestling, back again with my matches of the month. But this one's a little bit different, because it's a bonus edition, looking back at WrestleMania week. Not just the WWE-branded events, of course, there was loads of different events all around the City of Angels, Los Angeles. Um, lots to talk about, not, uh, not, not just the best matches as well, but some of the more noteworthy ones, I guess, even if I didn't personally enjoy them because the result was wrong, in my opinion. <laughs> oh dear, you might know what I'm referring to. With that in mind, there's probably only one place we can start. This is Matches of the Month, WrestleMania Week Edition. Absolutely epic. These two women leaving it all in the ring for the right to be the SmackDown Women's Champion. Come out of the cover, drapes his arm over the chest of McIntyre to win the elusive Intercontinental. Oh, 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 oh. Good there from the top. Long time coming. That had to feel Yeah, so we're going to start by talking about (laughs) Roman Reigns versus Cody Rhodes at WrestleMania 39 Night 2, or WrestleMania Sunday, as they were billing it. Um, I think the common theme of this episode, or at least the the WrestleMania portion maybe of this episode, is going to be how the build 
and the results, crucially, of a match can affect how it is seen in the eyes of its audience. Uh, this is obviously a phenomenon that's amplified at WrestleMania because the build of the matches has been under a microscope for weeks and the results matter a lot at WrestleMania. They affect the tone of the show. They affect storylines going forwards. They are written instantly into the history books way more visibly than other matches at other times of the year as well. Yeah, there's a lot of scrutiny going on, which means that the build towards the matches and the result of said matches is all important. So let's just get out of the way. If Cody Rhodes had won, <laughs> I think a lot of people would be talking about this as one of the best matches of the week and maybe one of the better WrestleMania main events ever. It was pure, you know, spectacle um, a little bit, you know, sports entertaining down the stretch with all the interference and everything. But I think it provided more wrestling action than Roman Reigns title defenses usually do these days. I usually think of Roman Reigns matches as good, but there's a really slow first part you've got to get past with a lot of melodrama and a lot of slow pacing and breaking down the baby face and stuff. And then all the twists and turns happen down the stretch. Whereas Roman versus Cody, I honestly thought, had a slightly more captivating format throughout, with Cody kind of having Roman's number. But then, <coughs> obviously Roman won, which shines a whole new light on the match. And honestly, I think it's one of the most fascinating booking decisions I can ever remember. Um, I'm, as I alluded to in the intro there, I'm personally against it, as I think the majority of people are. Back at Elimination Chamber... I understood both points of view, both sides of the argument. I was quite torn on whether Sami Zayn should have won at Elimination Chamber because I think it would have been, similarly to Daniel Bryan's triumph at WrestleMania 30, I think it would have been one of the biggest moments in modern wrestling, in modern WWE history as well. Um, but I also got the whole argument of, well, Sami can't win because they're saving it for Cody at WrestleMania. They weren't saving it for Cody at WrestleMania, as it turns out, so... I struggle to see the logic behind this decision. Um, some people are saying that it'll make it all the more dramatic when either Cody wins, although given what happened on this week's Raw, where he's been transitioned into this feud with Brock Lesnar, I don't know if that's going to be the case necessarily. Or when someone else beats Roman, it's going to make it all the more dramatic. But I don't really care, because I think they'll struggle to find a higher peak than an emotional peak than, than what Sunday night would have been. So even if Cody does win at SummerSlam or whenever, or even if another babyface gets the crowd on side and wins somewhere down the line. So it's the main event of WrestleMania. And it was the story of Cody coming back to WWE, doing it for his legendary dad and all that. It doesn't get bigger. Yeah, I think they've made a mistake. And I know that, you know, that people will disagree and everything, and that's cool. It's, it's great to have different opinions and everything. That's just mine. I know the Triple H in the press conference afterwards was quite defensive over this booking decision and said... In WWE, you know, the slogan of this match was finish the story, but in WWE, the story always continues. And the decision to have Roman retain, I guess, if you take Triple H's words into account, it could be seen as like, oh, well, WWE have something bigger at play here. We just need to let it play out. I'd suggest that argument might have had some credence before Vince returned in his creative capacity this week. And now we're all a little bit more skeptical, I think. But even if Triple H was still in charge of creative, it kind of still begs the question, even if Triple H has some grand master plan for Roman's title reign and the end of it at play, do we have faith in him to generate something better than Cody would have been uh, if he'd won? And I honestly, I don't, or if Sammy had won, or if Drew had won a Clash of the Castle. And I don't know if Triple H can generate any more moments like that. Not after this Cody one. I think the goodwill has been lost. 
yeah, I've lost a bit of faith in Triple H's booking, which is a shame. I'd still rather he was in charge, though, going forward, I have to say. I guess the other argument in favor of Roman winning is that it retains an air of unpredictability about WWE's product. You never quite know. Anything can happen in the World Wrestling Federation. But as AEW showed with the story of Hangman Page and Kenny Omega, sometimes the predictable result isn't necessarily the bad one. Swerving for the sake of swerving doesn't always work. And I think this is a good example of that. WWE showed it themselves in the main event of night one. And, you know, the Usos versus Sami Zayn. That was the predictable outcome. The Usos versus Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn was one of my favorite matches of the week. Even though I don't think it was necessarily like the best worked match of the week. Although it wasn't, it was no slouch in that regard, to be fair. But in terms of hitting all the necessary beats and delivering the best possible result, I think any match would struggle to top this one in terms of a spectacle and a satisfying conclusion. It was, in fact, it, that word satisfying is quite key. It was one of the most satisfying matches I can remember seeing up there with Kofi Mania as a recent example. Um, and even though we were all pretty certain that Owens and Zayn were winning, there was just enough doubt. There were just enough instances of peril sprinkled throughout the match. Like the 1D kick out, which commentary sold really well. Like, oh my God, no one kicks out of the 1D. Or Owens kicking out of the double splash, another good false finish down the stretch. And then that really satisfying ending where Sammy gets that final tag and steps into the ring all heroic to finish off Jay. And then that nice little touch as well of Jimmy Uso trying to trying to desperately save his brother, but then Kev cuts him off and hits the stunner. And yeah, it was brilliant. Really good ending, really smartly put together match and did everything it needed to do. Um, not a perfect match, but it didn't have to be at all to be a perfect story. Um, all that was expected of it really was that they played the greatest hits and it could almost afford to coast off the amazing build it had. But all four guys still put in more of a big effort than they even needed to. Um, and it led to a really, really fun main event. And as I say, a really satisfying one as well. So yeah, contrasting emotions there at the end of night one compared to the end of night two. But I loved it. Um, now that Cody's lost, part of me still wishes Sammy had won at Elimination Chamber. But, you know, this was still a good payoff. And I'm excited for a lot of excellent tag team matches involving Kev and Sammy as champions. Now we get on to the other WrestleMania matches I enjoyed, and then we'll step beyond the bounds of WrestleMania into the other bits of Los Angeles and see what else was going on over WrestleMania weekend. But there's only one place to start when talking about um, other impressive stuff, specifically on night one. And that's the SmackDown Women's Championship match, Charlotte Flair taking on, obviously, Rhea Ripley. Obviously, Rhea Ripley, I've specified there. Um, I enjoyed this more on a repeat viewing than I did the first time around. And that might have been because it was like 4 a.m. But on my first watch through of this match, I thought it was a real match of two halves. As I said in our What Happened At video that went out on the YouTube channel after the event. Um, I basically thought everything of note in the match happened in its latter half. And the first half didn't have much to it. However, watching it back, I realized that I've been quite harsh there in my judgment. I think the first half might not have had any like, you know, big near falls or it might have had a bit of a slower pace but it what I missed the first time around was that it was setting a tone like a real gritty tone as well and one of struggle between two hard-nosed women two competitors who are used to winning um, and it also established the narrative or reminded us that Rhea has failed against Charlotte before and that she was desperate to avoid that figure eight time and time again um, which was a smart move in the context of the story I thought 
the second half of the match, I enjoyed at the time, and I enjoyed it upon repeat viewing. That was still great. Obviously, the right decision was made in having Rhea win, although now um, I'd personally have her ditch the Judgment Day and turn face now. You heard, I mean, we knew in the build-up, but you heard in that strike exchange down the stretch of the match, the yay-boo punch exchange, the fans are so behind Charlotte, uh, sorry, behind Rhea, excuse me. The fans are so behind Rhea, despite her being the heel. I think you strike when the iron's hot. And then if you want to turn her heel later on again, or if the sheen wears off with the enjoyment of the fans or their adulation for her, you can always turn her back heel later if you need to, because she's naturally very imposing. But for now, I'd turn her face and just see what happens. Um, one drawback of the match, and you might know what I'm going to say here, is Charlotte doing her rueful smile on the outside, saying, oh, you got me, kid. But she didn't seem upset at all. She was just like, oh, damn it. It wasn't like, um, I saw one or two people compare it to Sasha smiling on the outside after Bianca beat her at WrestleMania 37. I think it was very different. I don't know if Sasha was meant to be caught on camera. She was like weeping with joy that they'd put on a great match and that it was... Uh, this is what I'm assuming she was crying for. It was such a historic moment. Two black women in the main event of WrestleMania. It was an amazing moment, and they rose to the occasion. This felt scripted. Charlotte was told, you know, the camera's going to be on you after the match. Now, I I, I hope <laughs> that Charlotte hasn't gone into business for herself here and that the rueful smile was to set up a rematch and that she was told to do this because after that Becky Lynch confrontation on SmackDown that time with the belt exchange... Would anybody put it past Charlotte to have refused to be upset and to just shrug off the loss and smile? I hope that's not what happened. Because, uh, I mean, either way, you know, it's not Charlotte's fault. Either way, I, I think that the camera shouldn't have been on her in the slightest. This should have been all about Rhea. This should have been her moment. But I am nitpicking because the overall, like, the match was a great one. I know Dave Meltzer said that it was... um maybe the greatest women's match he's ever seen. I personally wouldn't go that far, but I thought it was really, really good. Um, despite that, though, despite me thinking it was really good, I think I'm still slightly less enthusiastic about it than most people. I think most people have been really positive about this match, which is great. But um, maybe I just wasn't fully on board with it, but I still really enjoyed it, though. Um, using that as a like a launching pad to talk about the next match... This is one that I was way more positive on than like nearly anybody else I saw give their opinion about it. I thought it was a really good match and I've seen lots of other people criticize it. Big style. <laughs> that is the Raw Women's Championship match between Bianca Belair and Asuka. I saw a lot of people not happy about this one. And I think it all comes back to that theme I was talking about at the start, which is this idea of the result of a match affecting the general uh, feeling towards it. Asuka lost and is obviously like this internet darling, an amazing wrestler. She's got the background of being a great, you know, Japanese women's wrestler uh, coming over to the U the US and not being given a big win at Mania that she definitely deserves by this point, certainly. Um, so there's all that narrative coming into play here. She's brilliant in the ring. She's a brilliant character, so charismatic, a real all-rounder. And I think on balance most people probably wanted to see her beat Bianca Belair. Now, I wasn't in that camp necessarily. I'm quite on board with this wider story of Bianca 
always turning it on at WrestleMania and remaining undefeated. Because I was a huge fan of her match against Sasha and a huge fan of her match against Becky at the previous two WrestleManias. So I don't think I was ever convinced that Asuka was winning this match. It seems like a lot of people pinned their hopes on Asuka and have had them dashed by Bianca winning here. I like the idea of Bianca being a strong champion and being unbeatable for now at WrestleMania. Now, I know that sounds incredibly hypocritical after I slammed the Roman Reigns result earlier on in this podcast, but it's just kind of the way I see it, I suppose. Um, because of all that going into it, I think maybe I ended up watching this match with kinder eyes than other people did because I was never really convinced that Asuka was winning. Um, and this isn't me going like, I predicted it correctly. I knew Bianca would win because, God, I've had so many predictions wrong over the years publicly on YouTube. So I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying I, I really did think Bianca would win, and she did. Um, even with Asuka's new gimmick and, and the face paint and everything, I don't think there was enough substance to her build. That's not a good thing, by the way. That's that's a bad, that's a criticism of WWE's booking, and Asuka certainly deserves better and has never won at Mania, as as has been pointed out. But at least it meant I didn't get my hopes up for Asuka, only to have them be let down. I saw this match more as another chapter in Bianca's ongoing story. Um, I've also seen some people say there were miscommunications in this match or that Bianca was rushing at the start, which I saw as her being intense to start off the bout. I thought that was deliberate. But there were one or two timing errors, I have to admit, that, that people have pointed out to me that I've now come to realize are true. They weren't as obvious to me at the time as they were to some, because I think I was just enjoying the match. Maybe it wasn't as good a match on repeat viewing. Maybe it's like the opposite of what I was saying about Charlotte versus Rhea, which, for me, was greatly improved upon a second viewing. Maybe if I watch this one again, I'll be like, ah, it's not as good as I thought in the moment. I've got to say, though, <clears throat> I'll try and stand by my belief that it was a good match. Whoever the road agent is on Bianca's WrestleMania matches, because it feels like the same person for the past three, always does a great job because they are structured in a very clever way, if you're a Bianca fan, at least, and if you're okay with her winning. They're structured in a way that um, always has impressive set-piece moments. I remember her carrying Sasha up the steps or whipping her with her hair. Or in this one, for example, you had the the mist moment and then the mist, the, the mist, Asuka spitting the mist, and then the mist, like she didn't hit it, the blow with her braid, and it all carried on, and then standing up out of the submission attempt. It, it's all basic stuff, but Bianca carries it off so well, and it's always well-structured in the match. So whoever puts her matches together, whether it's how much of the input her or her opponents or a road agent, credit to them, because I think that really boosts the match's quality as well. I will concede that it's probably the weakest of Bianca's WrestleMania trilogy so far, but I still really enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy it as much as the last match I want to talk about from... The, the WrestleMania shows themselves before we move further afield. Oh my, I think you know what match I'm going to talk about. This was unflipping believable. <laughs> I can swear on here, can't I? Oh, it doesn't matter. The, you know, I can, but I can't bring myself to now. I've pointed it out. It was unruddy believable, guys. Gunter versus Sheamus versus Drew for the IC title. Oh my God, what a match. This was brilliant. I've, I've not had so much fun watching a match in ages, man. Uh, it was brutal and emotional in equal measure. I loved the interplay between all three guys. Seamus and Gunter have their history. Seamus and Drew have their history. Drew and Gunter don't have as much, but that's a story in itself. 
I love Drew ru- like ruining Sheamus's chance to win and then the the stare down and the brawl after that. Everyone in this match absolutely killed it. Gunter is clearly a special talent. Uh, not just because he's an excellent wrestler, which we all know by now easily, because but also his style feels totally unique in WWE. There's no match like a Gunter match. Similar to Brock Lesnar, there's no match like a Lesnar match, and in a different way, there's no match like a Gunter match. He feels like a real old-school monster heel with a modern-day work rate, and it's fantastic. Um, I've even seen him suggested... This IC title run, by the way, has been an absolute triumph, uh, and I hope that Vince doesn't mess it up now he's back in charge, it seems. Um, I've I've even seen Gunter suggested as the person who finally beats Roman Reigns. Not something I can necessarily see happening, by the way, but the, but just the very fact that people are suggesting it across Twitter and Reddit and stuff... That just shows how good this IC title run has been because it's made Gunter into someone that people can realistically see as world champion and possibly even beating Roman Reigns. And that's full credit to Gunter for doing that and the booking as well. Well done to this match for living up to the hype because going into Mania, it was definitely seen as the match to watch out for. I don't know if we can call it a sleeper hit when everyone knows it's going to bang. So I guess it was just a hit, but... That level of hype carries its own dangers with it. Remember AJ and Nakamura? They had a fine match at WrestleMania, but one which couldn't live up to the impossible hype they generated. This match totally surpassed it. It was absolutely brilliant and um, was perfect for what it was. I wouldn't change a thing about this match. I don't even know what else to say about it. But one more point, actually. I think it's worth noting as well and highlighting that Sheamus' latter career resurgence is really quite something special. I know that wrestlers' peak, uh, or the peaks of wrestlers' careers tend to be later than the peaks of other athletes in other sports, you know. Um, But usually wrestlers peak, like, what are they, like, in their late 30s or something? Don't they say once you've still got the ability to go in the ring, but you've you've gathered enough experience to have intelligent matches and tell a story? It's usually sometime in their 30s. Some will peak earlier, some will peak later on, maybe even into their early 40s. Sheamus is 45. He's five years away from being 50, and he is peaking now, which is class. Like, I love that for him. And um, he fully deserves all the plaudits. If I had to pick one standout of the match, it would be him, because he was kind of the emotional heartbeat of the match. But at the same time, that's taking away from the other two guys, and I don't want to do that. What a match it was on the whole Incredible stuff. Um, As we leave the WrestleMania portion of this podcast and go on to the other shows of the weekend, I do want to say this, right? And it's not really related to the rest of the podcast or even the theme of this podcast. So I'm being a bit cheeky here. But I want to share my own feelings on Cody losing specifically. Apologies to Tom Campbell, who edits these in advance, for making this episode a longer editing job for him. But hopefully it's worth it. Hopefully I can... Provide maybe a little bit of insight that people find interesting regarding Cody Rhodes and his loss here. As we were watching in the office, the pre-show of night two, the, the kickoff show, there is a shot of Cody, Brandy, and their daughter getting off a bus backstage and heading into the stadium. And my wonderful colleague here at Cultaholic, the editor of our website, cultaholic.com, Aiden, he said something like, hang on, it looks like Brandy's been crying, or it looks like her and Cody are upset. He basically pointed out, it looks like they're upset walking into the arena here. And um, at the time, I kind of shrugged it off. I was like, what, you, what do you mean, Aiden? Surely not. Um, 
Turns out Aiden wasn't the only one to think something was up because that same moment has since been shared on Twitter with people suggesting, or spec it's speculation really, isn't it? But people speculating that this might have been moments after they found out Cody wasn't going to win that night. Watching it back, I don't know if I agree necessarily, but I can't understand why people would come to that conclusion. And it is wild speculation, again, I want to emphasize that. Even if you agree that they maybe look upset or deflated in some way, it could just be because they're tired, they've got a young kid, or they could be trying to, you know, have their serious game faces on for the camera. It's Cody heading into his big main event, you know, it could be kayfabe. What I will say, though, whether it's true or not, whether it's baseless speculation or not, what I will say is this. I hope it's not true. And I hope that Cody knew that he wasn't winning a long way in advance. Some have suggested that he will have known for ages because it's been reported that Roman was the planned winner for at least a few weeks in advance. So people have then taken that to mean that Cody will definitely have known. But it was also reported that nobody knows for certain when the talent themselves found out. And I don't think it's out of the question that management, upper management, would have kept that a secret and only told the talent on the day itself to avoid leaks. And I hope that isn't true. I hope that Cody found out weeks or months beforehand because uh, it made me feel sick when it happened to Roman at WrestleMania 31 with his family all in attendance there for what they thought was his big moment, just like Cody's family were there on Sunday. And I hope they knew that he wasn't winning. Um, you know, people might say, oh, they would definitely have told him in time, but it's wrestling, man. And from my own experience working in a wrestling promotion, even though I didn't do it for that long, I got enough of a sense of what a wrestling promotion is like on a smaller scale, obviously, than WWE. But things are changed so often. And walking around backstage, you hear rumors flying around. And there are so many different people relaying so many different bits of information. You learn never to trust what you're told until you've seen it happen in the ring in real time. Like, people say the screw job, the Montreal screw job was a work. I will never believe that because I've worked backstage in a wrestling promotion. I know how confusing and uh, changeable a show is. And I can totally see how the screw job happened. Totally, 100%. You know, to give a real, right, to give a real peek behind the curtain here on, on just how quickly information can change backstage. We had a show in Nottingham with WCPW. And the main event was a triple threat cage match for our belt. Joseph Connors, the champion at the time, versus Joe Hendry versus Drew Galloway, or Drew McIntyre, as he is now known. Sorry, this, this has gone on a big tangent, but I swear I'll get back to the point of the podcast shortly. But um, it didn't really matter to me at all at the time. But I remember backstage asking the, the, the head booker of WCBW on the day of the show, oh, Connors is retaining the belt in the cage match, right? Because I'd not heard any future booking plans taking into account a title change. I thought uh, in my head, I was like, the cage stipulation means he he was the heel. He can beat these two popular baby faces without pinning them and so on and so on. And the head booker told me, yes, Connors is going over. The main event came and to my surprise, Drew won uh, and won the belt. And I was shocked because only an hour or two earlier, I had been told directly by the guy with the book, the guy in charge, that Connors was winning. And when I saw him backstage after the show, we sort of had a laugh about it. Like, oh, you got me. That's a really low stakes example of what I'm talking about here. Like the booker knew that I wasn't going to, he knew he, he knew that I, if he told me Drew was winning, he knew I wasn't going to tweet out the result ahead of time or anything stupid like that. There was no harm in him working me, I guess. 
I actually think he did it so that I got a bit of a cool kick out of seeing Drew win live. I, I felt like a fan, you know, I felt like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that at all. And it was cool because Drew was like this big famous name and he's won our belt. So I think, I don't think our booker had any malicious intent when he lied to me about that. I think it was done with good intentions. But what I mean is, it's an example of learning backstage at a wrestling show never to fully trust any plans you hear, even when it's a show you're part of. There is every chance that Cody Rhodes thought he was winning that match until hours before it took place. With that all in mind, I went back and watched his entrance on Sunday with this theory in mind. And, and you, ca you can't tell from his entrance whether he knew he was, when he found out he was losing the match. You can't tell. But I tried to then put myself in his shoes as he walked down that ramp. And everyone's going crazy for him. And there's people in the front row, not just supporting Cody, but like urging him on, going like, come on, you've got this, you're going to win. And he's got to look at those fans as he walks down there and know that he's not going to win. And I know wrestlers lose title matches. I'm not stupid. I know that this happens all the time. But to go into that until the day of the show, thinking that you're going to win, and then you've got to walk out there and swallow that knowledge and still act like the big hero, I hope that's not what happened. And I hope he knew well ahead of time. Because I'd feel sick if that was me, man. If I was walking out there, having only learned that. Um... It just reminds me, just the idea that this might have happened. And again, I'm just taking this as fact when it's really not. He might have known, but I hope it's not true. Because even at its biggest and grandest and most spectacular level, like wrestling can still be a carny businessman, can't it? It can still be dishonest and cruel. And you just need to look at the way he was squashed on Raw by Lesnar, which hopefully will lead to him getting revenge. But honestly, at this stage, who knows? You might think that I've gone on a bit of a rant there, and I have, and it's quite a passionate opinion to have about something that's not even been verified. Um, and I get it. And I know that Cody's not someone we necessarily should feel sorry for. He's probably got a great life. He's got a beautiful family, a great career that he's passionate about. Um, he's successful. He's forged his own path, and he's probably very satisfied with his life's work. But if he found out that result on Sunday and they gave him this false hope of having this amazing moment and took that away from him. He 100% does not deserve that. Cody's a guy that I met a handful of times when I worked in WCPW. And to him, I'm just like a, a kid that he knew then. Not someone he needed to pay attention to whatsoever. Not somebody that he needed to remember in his head who I was long after working for WCPW. I was just a guy he worked in, he wrestled in the same promotion as I worked at backstage. Instead, and I'm sure that countless people in that promotion will agree, he was a stand-up guy. Very funny, very disarming, makes you feel like you're in on the joke with him. You know, fair to everybody, kind to everybody from members of the ring crew to the guy he's wrestling in the main event. Treats everyone the same. Brandy was there as well sometimes. Uh, I didn't, know her as much, but she seemed like a very cool person as well. Fast forward a few years to um, last April, and it's getting a bit serious now, so do please forgive me, but last year I got some bad news about the health of a family member. I'm not going to get into details here, but I had to take a few weeks off presenting duties at work. While that was going on, I put out a tweet basically letting everybody know, hey, something's happened in my private life. I'm going to be off camera for a few weeks. And Cody Rhodes DM'd me saying like, he didn't ask what had happened or anything. He just went, are you okay? And this is a guy that I, 
I hadn't seen for years and who didn't, we didn't really know each other that well in the first place. And he didn't need to do that. And he did it. This, by the way, happened in April last year, weeks after his big WWE comeback. He had so much going on. He did not need to do that. And I will always think so highly of him because of the character of the man. That's why I guess I'm so passionate about this and hope that he found out that he was losing well in advance because oh, I hope WWE did him the courtesy of letting him know way ahead of time because that's exactly how he would treat someone else. He wouldn't he wouldn't treat them unfairly. Ugh, it makes me feel sick thinking about it. I hope it's not true. Anyway, got very serious there. Um, on with the wrestling. 
Let's start with, I think, my favorite match of the night. Wesley versus Dragon Lee versus JD McDonough versus Ilya Dragunov versus Axiom. Fatal five-way action for the North American Championship. Now, this match had a bit of a dodgy build, I think. It, it definitely performed better than its build would have suggested. Two competitors in the match, JD and Ilya, openly cared more about their feud with each other than they did winning this belt. Um, you also had a brand new guy in Dragon Lee, who's got a big reputation from his work in Mexico and in New Japan, but he's just been thrust into this multi-man match without much of a build in NXT. And it's not exactly the best spotlight for just one guy in a fatal five-way. You've also got a guy in Axiom who's not the character with the greatest depth, it has to be said. He's, <laughs> he's essentially playing a nice man in a mask who is intelligent and also likes comic books and stuff. <laughs> That's his gimmick. Um, despite all of these little issues heading into it, all five men knocked out the park. It's probably a similar sort of match to one of my favorite matches of last year. I wouldn't say it was as good as what I'm about to, to talk about, but it felt like it was, if it was a movie, it would have the same director, if that makes sense. Maybe it had the same agent behind it, I don't know. And that was the Men's Iron Survivor match late in 2022. Um, that was kind of my most surprising match of the year. It was in my top 10, which I would never have guessed for a match on the NXT brand, but it was excellent. If you don't believe me, go and watch it back. It was quality, that men's Iron Survivor match. The women's match was good too. The men's one was insane. But this match was along similar lines. It wasn't as good as that, but it was still really, really entertaining. Breathless action, excellently paced, structured in really a clever way where you had rolling waves of momentum that stacked up on top of each other. And then you get a bit of a breather and then there'd be another big moment and then there'd be another build to a crescendo. And it, it just was really well done. Obviously, it was put together well, but then the guys in the ring have to perform for that to pay off, and they did, with a plot. Um, the only drawback for me was maybe on the finish, which was ambitious. It was kind of like a three-way collision with Wesley then taking advantage and collapsing down onto, uh, I believe it was Ilya, for the pinfall. Weird guy to take the pinfall in that match, yeah. But, that the yeah, the finishing spot didn't come off that well. But apart from that, I absolutely loved it, and it was my match of the show. In second place, and a close runner-up, because I enjoyed this match too, was the unsanctioned match, which in the build they signed a contract for, which is confusing, because I thought unsanctioned meant that it doesn't matter. Uh, Grayson Waller versus Johnny Gargano. This was my other favorite match of the night. Kind of a throwback as well for Johnny, who's not had the best time really on the main roster so far, but this was a throwback to his series of matches with Champa, which obviously was centered around this very personal, hateful feud between two former best friends and tag partners. The build here wasn't as good as the build for that, but, you know, what was? But it was, you know, a bit more thrown together. Waller ruined Gargano's farewell speech when he first left NXT. Waller would then spend the next year or however long rising up the card, feuding with Shawn Michaels, wanting to wrestle Shawn, HBK recently said, no, no, I'm not coming out of retirement for you. You're not. Oh, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> You're not in Saudi Arabia. Come on, Grace. Um, so instead, HBK brings back this very vengeful Johnny Gargano to fight on his behalf. Things then took a slightly absurd turn the week before this match, with Grayson breaking into Gargano's home on the weekly edition of NXT and beating Johnny down in front of his wife and infant child in the front yard. So that was very over the top. Um, it escalated the feud, but it escalated it, in my view, to heights that it maybe hadn't earned yet. Um, 
Still, though, the match delivered, uh, which is all that matters, really, isn't it? A simple revenge story, Gargano playing this great emotional babyface. Waller is maybe... He's not the biggest heel in WWE at the moment. Obviously, that's Roman, but he Waller's maybe the purest heel in WWE right now. Roman can be cool and funny. There are redeeming qualities about Roman that make some people want to cheer him. Waller deliberately subverts all of that. He is a proper old-school heel. He does anything for attention. He does anything to um, verbally abuse his opponents. He'll say anything. And there's a real, like, early 2000s Chris Jericho deliberate. He's playing it deliberately insecure as well. He laughs a lot, but, like, he's laughing in a slightly desperate way because he's really insecure. He's playing a really good character as Waller, and he's one of the best heels in WWE for me. And I think people are coming around to that viewpoint as well. Hopefully... Hopefully he gets a shot on the main roster soon because he deserves it. Um, in this match as well, because he can he can go in the ring as well. And in this match, he took a real beating. Four-hour entertainment, guys. Um, his back was a mess by the end of it from kendo stick shots and that sort of thing. Um, and Candice LeRae got involved as well from the guardrail, uh, beating Waller up a bit too, which was a nice payoff to the weirdly melodramatic scene we saw the week before that I just talked about. So, yep. Yeah, Great match, better than its build, just like the North American title match was. And just like, I guess, Stand and Deliver was on the whole. Um, thank you to everybody who watched along with me and Ross on Twitch. I have, <laughs> I have to apologize, as I apologized to Ross, for telling him the wrong start time, meaning that he had to rush to the office to watch Chase U versus The Schism on the pre-show. He got there just in time. Also... Why was Chase U versus the Schism bumped off the main card, by the way? It's a disgusting decision. That's the most emotional storyline in all of NXT. Ah, oh, couldn't believe it. I am just glad, on the other hand, that Duke Hudson was proven to be the hero that we all needed. He said he was going to bring the balance, and that's exactly what he's doing. But can he bring the balance enough to become a champion? Claudio standing up to him, but he buckled his knees on that chop to the face. Claudio was stunned, certainly. You can see Claudio, I believe, wearing a mouth guard. That will protect him against a knockout. And the chops unloading for Claudio. Eddie Kingston's been on an incredible roll. Yes, that's right. Now we are talking about, I think, the standout non-WWE show of WrestleMania week. Supercard of Honor, a show that a lot of people loved and a show that I liked. I don't know if I loved it, but there were I, I definitely enjoyed it a lot. Um, I just was slightly less enthusiastic about certain matches that some people loved. I'll get, let's get on to it. I think there's five matches worth discussing here, some of which I really liked, some of which I wasn't fully on board with. The first one was for the AAA Mega Championship, El Hijo del Vikingo versus Commander, or Com... I think I'm pronouncing it slightly wrong. I think they say, like, Commander or something. I'm not an expert. Although I did get an A star at GCSE Spanish, so maybe I should be better at this. These are both men that we talked about in the last episode of this podcast. Vikingo had that much-talked-about match with Kenny Omega on Dynamite. <clears throat> Commander was a standout performer of the WXW 16-carat gold tournament in Germany. Now, I know I'm in the minority here when I say this, but uh, this match was very impressive, but it was just too loose for me, and I couldn't get fully on board. There were obvious elements, I thought, of cooperation. There were some really scary bumps. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but, like, tables not breaking, 630 centons being taken full in the torso. Um, yeah, 
It wasn't for me. I enjoy bits of it. It was a, an exciting way to start off a pay-per-view. I'll admit that. It got the crowd off their seats. But on the other hand, it kind of leaves matches further on down the card with not a lot to follow it unless they're radically different in tone. I think this match had a negative impact, for example, on the ladder match because they did all the acrobatics you could ever want to see for a whole show in the opening match. I'm in favor of starting off a show with a hot match, but maybe a hot match in storyline rather than one between two guys who can and will do every move in the book that most of the rest of your roster cannot pull off. So, mm, weird one. Good way to start off some shows. Good way to start off a Ring of Honor pay-per-view. I don't know. Certainly not the traditional definition of Ring of Honor, but then this is a slightly new Ring of Honor, isn't it? Maybe this, you know what, maybe this podcast series is just teaching me that I'm not a fan of Lucha Libre, which is a shame if that turns out to be the case. Just a whole section of the wrestling landscape gone from my brain. No, it was okay. It was okay. A match that I preferred was Samoa Joe versus Mark Briscoe for the TV title. But along with Cody's match, this was the other, like, gut punch of a loss this, this or last week. Um, for far more serious reasons, obviously, with the tragic passing of Jay Briscoe. Yeah, I was I was so convinced that Mark was going to win. Um, and I'm not entirely certain why he didn't. It wasn't, like, as certain a result, I guess, in terms of, like, it wasn't the main event of WrestleMania. It wasn't a moment built to for months. But in simplest terms, really, it just would have been nice to give him the win, wouldn't it? His kids were there in the front row, man. I don't know. It was a good match anyway. Mark's a great baby face. Um, easily like a, a very lovable character, easy to get on board with. Samoa Joe is perfect in this sort of spoiler role, of course. In fact, Joe, as I've mentioned previously, he's had a really nice resurgence recently, which I think maybe kicked off with that Darby Allen match in AEW a couple of months ago. Um, yeah, I enjoyed the action. Confused about the finish, though. At least the finish had Mark passing out, I guess, rather than submitting or getting pinned. Because um, he shouldn't have been giving up in that situation. So I'm glad they went the route they did. Hopefully, he does get a big emotional victory at some point in the future. Not just because of, obviously, Jay and everything, but also because Mark just deserves it as well as a very talented babyface uh, and someone who's been a key player in Ring of Honor for so long as well. He really deserves it. Uh, the third match from the show, worth discussing, even though I wasn't, I wouldn't call myself a fan of it, was the Reach for the Sky ladder match. The Lucha Bros versus Top Flight versus The Kingdom versus Aussie Open versus Roosh and Rolistico, the two older brothers, by the way, of Dragon Lee, who we mentioned in the North American title match at NXT. Now, obviously, I need to address the elephant in the room straight away. As everybody's already said, best wishes to Donnie Martin, a, a horrible injury. Hopefully, he has as full and fast a recovery as he possibly can. It just wasn't nice to see. It really put, you know, a cloud over the, the ending of the match, which came shortly afterwards. And the main thing isn't the match. It's it's the safety of everybody involved. So hopefully Dante recovers well. He, he and his brother have had horrendous luck with injuries, and it's very sad to see. And it's because of that, it's kind of hard to analyze the match beyond that, especially because of the nature of a match like this, which very much lives and dies by its high spots. And, you know, these high spots were very impressive in this match, but also very dangerous not just the one that resulted in an injury, which was that Canadian destroyer to the outside through tables. But you had like the suicide dive doomsday device by the kingdom. Aussie opens Alabama slam on the ladder bridge on Darius Martin, I think it was. 
or Darius. Uh, I never know how you pronounce Darius or Darius Martin. Um, glad he was okay because that was a nasty bump. Matt Taven's big splash onto Drillistico on another ladder bridge, which probably didn't give as much as they'd have wanted it to. Roosh with that overhead belly-to-belly -belly into another ladder bridge on Mark Davis. Yeah, there was lots of stuff in this match that was jaw-dropping stuff. But when you reevaluate it with the added context of Donde's very sad injury, it's like, it's harder to enjoy for me. Um, also, if that injury had never happened, I still would have preferred other examples of this type of match to this one. This was a little bit too spotty, I guess. Like, there was a story, I suppose, but it it wasn't treated as important as the spots. And that's fine sometimes, but I thought they could have done more here in terms of the story and didn't need to take such high risks, but that's cool. I'm all for risks in wrestling matches if it's worth it, and I don't know if it was here. The next match I loved, I <laughs> really good, but I am very biased because I am a huge fan of one of the guys involved. This was Wheeler Utah defending his pure championship against the man himself. Can you guess which one I'm a big fan of? Uh, Katsuyura Shibata. When I first started watching New Japan a few years ago, um, Shibata was like the first guy, you know when you watch an unfamiliar promotion or you see an unfamiliar wrestler, and there's just one guy or girl, there's one wrestler that you just connect with instantly. Shibata was the first one for me in New Japan. The one who, like, after just watching my first few New Japan shows, I was like, I'm a Shibata fan all day. Um, and it was fun because I lived with Sam Driver at the time and it, his guy's Ishii. So you had Shibata and Ishii going back and forth as well. Yeah, I'm a big Shibata fan. Really sad when he was forced to retire after that insane match against Kazuchika Okada at Sakura Genesis that time. Um, there is certainly an argument to be made that he should not be wrestling right now, but it's hard not to enjoy his matches still because he's that damn good. And he won this match and he won the pure title, which I really was not expecting. I think it worked on balance, the booking decision, but only because Wheeler Yuta is a heel now. If this was Shibata taking the belt off a babyface Wheeler, I don't think I'd have liked it as a booking decision. I think it would have felt wrong. I thought it was a great match. It's Again, I'm very biased in favor of Shibata matches. I love his style of matches. I love his moveset. Uh, yeah, he's a brilliant wrestler, man. Wheeler's great too, and I hope that it doesn't you know, ruin his momentum or anything. I suspect maybe he'll beat Shibata and win the belt back, but we'll have to wait and see. I don't know what Shibata's schedule is like and whether he'll be able to defend this very often. He is the head of, the LA, of New Japan's LA Dojo, isn't he? So I don't know. Maybe it won't be the longest title reign. He still got it at the time of recording anyway. And finally, one of my matches of the weekend of, of WrestleMania week, the main event of this show, which was the Ring of Honor world title match between Eddie Kingston and Claudio Castagnoli. Two perfect rivals because of their differences. Um, Eddie's rough. He's uncompromising. He is unashamedly himself. And Claudio is not an everyman in the slightest. Like he is this super dude who looks incredible, can do incredible things. Whereas Eddie's a man of the people, which kind of makes you forget sometimes that he's a really talented wrestler, but it just helps you get on board with him even more. Um, of all the great things AEW has done, they have dropped the ball a few times. And I think one of their biggest mistakes and one of Tony Khan's biggest failings as a booker is Eddie and not treating him like the main eventer he is, in my opinion. I want Eddie Kingston to ultimately be the guy who beats MJF down the line. 
at the moment, it really looks like that's not the case. Like, that's really unlikely because Eddie seems to have left AEW and is now wrestling just on the Ring of Honor brand. The positive of that is that he gets to renew his decade-plus-long feud with Claudio Castagnoli. Just to give a bit of brief background, I guess, for anybody who might be unfamiliar, although I will recommend the video on Ring of Honor's YouTube channel recapping their history, which uh, was done by Joseph Weirdness, a very talented YouTuber who I've learned so much about, specifically all Japan matches from him. So check out Joseph Weirdness on Twitter, where you can then find his YouTube channel, which I can't now remember off the top of my head. Apologies to you, Joseph, but he is great. You'll find him via that Ring of Honor YouTube video as well. But the background of this feud is that in Chikara, years ago, Eddie Kingston was a brutal, realism-based figure in this cartoonish comic book world of superheroes and supervillains. Chikara was a weird promotion, and Eddie Kingston was a real, angry, gritty dude surrounded by mystical pharaohs from the past, or, oh, these two guys are dressed as ants, or, you know what I mean? Like, it, he, he didn't fit in, and it made him an excellent, badass, intimidating figure. Because <clears throat> he's battering these, like, children's cartoon characters, and you're like, no. <laughs> and then you've got this baby-faced dude called Claudio Castagnoli, who everybody loves, and who Eddie Kingston is saying, no, he's not cool. He's a bad guy. And he warned the fans about Claudio. And they didn't believe him, because they love Claudio, and Eddie's a bad dude. So why would you trust Eddie? You Look at Claudio, he's a hero. And then Claudio turned heel, and Eddie was proven right. Um... And Claudio joined this heel stable called Bruderschaft and they took over the promotion and it's just a great story. And the great thing about Eddie Kingston is that he holds a grudge. So you'll have him face somebody from years ago in his career and he still hates them to this day. And that's brilliant. I love the continuity of Eddie Kingston. You then get the pair meeting again in Ring of Honor and having this match, which told a brilliant story, especially with history repeating itself because Claudio has once again turned heel along with the rest of the Blackpool Combat Club. And Eddie's proven right again. But nobody listens to him, and that just makes him more angry. It's great stuff. And this match played on that perfectly. Eddie is so intense throughout. Claudio has to step outside of his comfort zone and wrestle ugly, ramming the crowd barricade into Eddie again and again, which is not like him, despite being a heel. He's like a superior, talented heel. He's not a rule-bending heel. So I like that touch as well, that Eddie was trying so hard, it like forced Claudio to go against his own moral code. Um, you also had some excellent moments like, I'm a sucker sometimes, as long as it's not too ridiculous for a kick out at one. So Eddie kicking out of the neutralizer at one was great. There was then the strike exchange. Eddie's like the best punch drunk seller in all of wrestling. He like tries this weak back fist attempt and Claudio laughs it off. That was a great moment. The head scissors near fall where Eddie nearly won. That was excellent. And then Claudio ultimately winning, which made me sad, but Eddie's promised that he's going to, fight him again and beat him next time. And I and I believe him. I believe in Eddie Kingston. But no, this was this was a great match and a great um a great ending to a show that I feel like I've not fairly represented there. I mean Supercard was a great show. I just don't think it was as super as some others did. But that main event was sick. Loved it. We have gathered the baddest, the hardest, the toughest in all of professional wrestling to give our blood, sweat, and tears here tonight. For everyone in attendance and everybody watching live on Fight, this is the hardest hitting event in all of professional wrestling. And there is many imitators, but there is no equal to Josh Barnett's blood sport. 
And finally, we're just going to take a whistle-stop tour of the other stuff that went on at WrestleMania weekend. I mean, not everything, because there was so much, but some of my favorite things. Unfortunately, none of my favorite matches of the week really came from Multiverse United. Speedball versus Tanahashi was good. Kushida versus Leo Rush was good. I don't know, the show was a little bit of a letdown for me, and that's not, and the sad thing is, that's not even the fault of Impact or New Japan. Impact have had a horrendous run of luck recently with both their men's and women's champions getting injured. So it's a shame. I, I appreciate they still put the show together and, you know, get, I'm sure the people who went had a great time and everything and it was fine. It was a good show. Just not, you know, not, it didn't grab my attention at all, really, which is a shame. Um, again, that's not Impact's fault. I feel really bad. <laughs> uh, then you've got uh, one of many GCW shows over the week, uh, over the weekend, Bloodsport, Josh Barnett's Bloodsport, which, oh, is it starting to lose its luster a little bit? Bloodsport was, for the past few years, it's been one of the highlights of WrestleMania week because it's so different. Um, if you don't know what Bloodsport is, it's like shoot-style matches. You win by knockout or submission. Very MMA-inspired. Uh, there's no ring ropes. The matches can go really short. They can go a bit longer. It's very unpredictable and cool. But this year... There wasn't that standout match. There wasn't that Moxley or Oni Lorcan or Biff Busick, excuse me. That, like, people have had great matches at Bloodsport. And I don't think there was one particular massive standout this year. There were a couple of matches that I really liked, though. I liked Speedball Mike Bailey versus Ibushi. Great to see Kota Ibushi back. I hope he takes it easy. People have pointed out he looked a little bit slower than usual over the weekend. I mean, he's come back from a horrendous series of injuries. So, I mean, fair play to him for even making his return. Um... Interesting match with Speedball. Not the purest blood sport shoot style match you might ever see, but definitely very entertaining. And yeah, just great to see Ibushi back. I also enjoyed Moxley's match with Alex Coughlin, who is probably going to be a future star somewhere because he's brilliant. They really went for it. And it was a match booked at the last minute and they just really tore into each other, which is great to see. Moxley's great in the blood sport environment. He's not as much of a grappler. He's not as martial artsy as some people in Bloodsport events, he's just a brawler, and Bloodsport can do with a brawler, and that's, you know, it adds its own unique flavor. So he was very good. The main event is, I believe, the highest rated match of this show on Cage Match, which I disagree with, because I didn't really enjoy it that much, sadly. Josh Barnett, the man for whom the show is named, taking on Timothy Thatcher. Um, I'm a fan of Thatcher, certainly. I'm not too familiar with Josh Barnett in the MMA world. I know he's a legend and everything. They had a, a good match, like they were grappling a lot. It was very technical and people seemed to enjoy it more than me, which makes me think they are more intelligent in the ways of grappling and I am an uncultured swine. Maybe that's it. But I didn't, it didn't really electrify me as much as it did some people. The big thing is that Thatcher won and this is Josh Barnett's first loss at Bloodsport. So that's an interesting booking decision at least. Moving on to, oh, this was a great one. DDT goes Hollywood's main event. Konosuke Takeshita, the former DDT main eventer, who is now obviously an AEW wrestler, going back to his old promotion in LA to take on Yuki Ueno, who is, as Vader Scott said on commentary, his um, friend since they were teenagers. I also did a bit of research. They won the, ooh, what was it called? Let me find it. The 2017 Differ tournament together, which was a four-team tournament in Japan. Teams from, four different teams from four different promotions and yeah, Takeshita and Ueno won it together, beating teams from Noah, Freedoms, and Zero One to win. Um, 
the story here is that they're friends, they're former tag partners, they're both babyface boys, and now Takeshita is a big, strong main event boy. He's the size difference is noticeable here, um, despite the fact they used to be in a junior tag team together. Also, Takeshita's more known to the audience now because he's a name in AEW. Of course, he's he's making a name for himself in America, whereas Wayno is perhaps less familiar to the live crowd, but. Takeshita clearly wanted to help his mate here and gave him a lot in the match, despite Takeshita being the main eventer, being the favorite. He gave Wayno a lot of offense and sold for him really well. They did it for each other. You can tell they're friends because they were very giving towards each other in this match. I thought it was a great example of the face versus face formula. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a good main event. It was about a quarter of an hour long, nicely developed. They built a story together. And there were unique moments as well. The, the really nice moment was, you know that British wrestling reversal where like one guy sat down on the canvas and the other guy's in between his legs and does like a headstand to get out of the, the head scissors and gets out of it by standing on his head and like popping out of it. Tyler Bate does a great one, for example. Um, Wayno did that to try and get out of a Takeshita head scissors and Takeshita just grabbed his body and did like a little, like from sitting on his on his backside, did like a little bum hop and like gave him a mini pile driver it was awesome i've never seen that before really funny and, and effective as well nice ending sequence as well with wayno going for the bme the best moonsault ever which got caught into a tombstone and that set up Takeshita to hit the running knee and win the match which is the predictable result but it doesn't take away from the fact that it was a very entertaining main event so great stuff from both guys there Takeshita continues to be awesome and Wayno's got, I mean, a new fan in me as well because of this match. So good stuff all around. Oh, yeah, I'll mention as well the main event of the Tokyo Joshi Pro Show, which was uh, the team of... I used to think this team was called 121000000. They're called 121 million, which makes more sense, but it's written in new, in numerical form. 121 million, which is, um, I believe, Mayu, Mashita, Mayu Yamashita and Maki Ito taking on the magical sugar rabbits uh the magical <laughs> the magical sugar rabbits are uh, the team of yuka sakazaki who we know from aw of course and her tag team partner mizuki who i believe mizuki recently beat yuka sakazaki for the main singles title in in tokyo joshi pro so even though they're friends and they're challenging for the tag belts here could there be beef between them? How will they coexist? Because one's just beaten the other for the main singles championship. Meanwhile, on the other side of things, the champions, one to one million, Maki Ito, who's famous for memes on Twitter, and Yamashita, who's famous for being a badass, they're like the odd couple pairing. Now, there'll be fans out there of Tokyo Joshi Pro who know the history of all these four women far better than I do. So that's a very basic example. I also believe that the magical sugar rabbits, Sakazaki and Mizuki, they were... Uh, tag champions before lost them to one to one million and this is their chance to get those belts back despite possible tension because one's beating the other for the singles yeah right you get it this match was fun a lot of fun I have to give it to the crowd uh, I'm often wary of Tokyo Joshi Pro matches online because they're always reviewed very highly and then I go to watch them and I, I don't connect with them in the same way that certain people do Tokyo Joshi Pro seems to have a very loyal fan base who love their matches and love everything they put out and that's great it's just not fully for me all the time. But I really enjoyed this match. All four women did a great job. Maki Ito is clearly the weakest of the four in terms of work rate, and she has improved immeasurably from her little cameo in AEW the other year. She's, yeah, she held her own definitely with three 
I guess, more experienced women. And it was a lot of fun. I have to give credit to the crowd as well. He was fully invested and really added to the match and made it energetic, a lot of fun. Yes, it had maybe slightly more moments of comedy than I would usually like in a, in a big main event title match, but it worked at the same time. And it's not the biggest culprit in terms of a Tokyo Joshi Pro match being too comedic and getting in its own way, at least in my opinion. As I've said, I, I don't really resonate with the promotion style as much as certain people do. I enjoyed this match, and it deserves its props. There are a few matches, before I get to my rundown to end this podcast, there are a few matches that I still want to catch up with, which I might mention in my next episode, because I've heard good things, and I didn't get a chance to check them out, because it's been a horrendously busy week. Maybe when I next catch up with you at the end of April, or the beginning of May, I'll talk about, let's see what I've got written down here. So I need to watch the main event of the Mark Hitchcock Memorial Super Show, Vikingo versus Commander versus Black Taurus in a three-way, although given the fact that I didn't really enjoy the match the first two had at Ring of Honor, maybe I won't enjoy it. Maybe I'll enjoy it more. We'll find out. I also want to watch a couple of matches from Prestige Wrestling's Nervous Breakdown Show, one of the few non-GCW, non-WWE, non-Ring of Honor shows of WrestleMania week. A um, couple of matches from that were said to be good, including one featuring England's own Michael Oku. So I'm looking forward to watching that. Um, and this isn't a match that happened over WrestleMania week. It happened back in Japan. But by next month, I will talk about apparently Shingo Takagi in New Japan and Hanare of the United Empire. Apparently they've had a wonderful match um, with a very unique stipulation where you have to pin, submit, and keep your opponent down for a 10 count in any order. Never heard of that before. Like almost like an ultimate Texas death match. It sounds really entertaining. So I'll definitely be watching that and I'll get back to you with how good it was next time. But that was my recap and massive rant about <laughs> Cody not winning against Roman. Uh, that was my recap of WrestleMania week. So without any further ado, here is my top 10. These are the top 10 matches, in my opinion, of WrestleMania week 2023. At number 10, the one I've just talked about, the Magical Sugar Rabbits versus 1 to 1 million. Oh, I don't know if I mentioned that the former champions won. They won their belts back despite, despite not getting along. They actually did get along. They got along fine. They coexisted well. Uh, at number 9, underrated in my opinion, Bianca Belair versus Asuka for the Raw Women's Championship. Number 8, the Ring of Honor Pure title, Wheeler Yuta losing to my boy, Katsuyori Shibata. Number seven, the unsanctioned match between Grayson Waller and Johnny Gargano. Number six, Takeshita versus Ueno in the main event of DDT Goes Hollywood. Number five, Charlotte Flair versus Rhea Ripley for that SmackDown women's title. A match that I think I have maybe underrated because a lot of people have it right up there in their matches of the year so far. Number four, the North American title five-way match at NXT Standards Liver. I loved that match, thought it was excellent. Um... Where are we? Number three, Claudio Castagnoli versus Eddie Kingston for the Ring of Honor world title in the main event of Supercarder of Honor. Number two, the Usos versus Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn in the main event of WrestleMania Night 1. And my number one match of the week, Gunter versus Sheamus versus Drew McIntyre for that intercontinental belt. What a match it was, guys. So, let's see how the overall top 10, my ongoing constantly updating matches of 2023 list looks right now. Uh, at number 10, 
a match that many people would probably have higher. 60-minute Ironman match, MJF versus Brian Danielson. Number nine, uh, Noah versus New Japan, Kaito Kiyomiya versus Kazuchika Okada. Number eight, another Kaito Kiyomiya match, this time versus Keno uh, on New Year's Day. Number seven, Gleet, El Lindemann versus Kaito Ishida, free on YouTube, watch it now. Number six, Azumi versus Starlight Kid in stardom for the High Speed Championship. Number five, Claudio Castagnoli versus Eddie Kingston. It's in there, it's in the top 10. Number four, that All Japan tag team match I talked about ages ago now, and I still love it. Kenta Miyahara and Takuya Nomura versus Yuma Aoyagi and Naoya Nomura. Wonderful, strong style tag team action. Number three, a different tag team match. The Usos versus Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens WrestleMania Night 1. Number two, uh-oh, this could be controversial. It's been dethroned. Will Ospreay versus Kenny Omega from Wrestle Kingdom. Still an unbelievably good match. Five stars. But also five stars in my book is my new match of the year so far. Oh my goodness. It's Gunter versus Sheamus versus Drew. And I hope you agree. But if you don't, let me know what you think. So there we go. That was my WrestleMania Week special. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll be back at the beginning of May. Have a great Easter, everybody. And I hope you enjoyed WrestleMania Week. I've been Jack from Cultaholic. And I'll see you very soon. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. For all the wrestling headlines in just 10 minutes, search Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 